to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you Dubie's advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, it's October, which means that I'm officially carrying around the pebble that I throw at people who sing Christmas songs before November. It's called my Jingle Bell Rock. <laughs> I, I enjoyed that. I think there's like a there's like a 40-50% chance that I've said that one on the podcast before. I I but I I liked that one because I didn't see it coming, uh, but at the same time it it was a punchline, which are really my only two requests of your jokes. <laughs> Hank, before we answer questions from our oh, listeners, wow. there's something that we really need to get to. We do. Very very rarely in the history of Dear Hank and John has anything elicited the kind of responses that we got yeah. to the question of what happens if a person made out of lemons standing on a scale puts one of their lemon hands into a bucket of water that's on a different scale. Yes. Goodness gracious, our producer Rosiana had to create a separate document called Lemon People Bucket Problem, which... <laughs> I'd which, like to think which is how long it's 23 pages long John and and I'm sure that we've both read all of it. I I have read it it is amazing y'all are wonderful some of you are wrong most of you are right. <laughs> Certainly there's still a little bit of debate out. Mm, there's not a lot of debate. Yeah. If you are a lemon person standing on a scale and you put one of your lemon hands into a bucket full of water that's on a different scale the scale gets heavier. That's that scale shows a heavier weight mm-hmm. and you get lighter. Yes. On your scale. Uh-huh. Which is not what I expect. Like it's not a complete it's definitely not intuitive. I saw somebody who I follow on TikTok, uh, Tom Lum, was like, oh, this is great. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll I got a scale, I'll put my hand in and it won't change, right? And it changed, and he was like, oh no. I yeah, I, this is this is the outcome in science that you want, where you're like, I had a hypothesis and I've proven it to be non-intuitive. Yeah, although it is intuitive, apparently, if you, Once, understand, you understand Newton's yeah. third law, because and Archimedes. all of the yeah, all the explanations that made sense to me were and this is the, the easiest one for me was from somebody named Michael who wrote. Too long didn't read. Newton's third law means the bucket scale must go up by the same amount that the person scale goes down since the forces between the person and the bucket must be equal and opposite. Yes. And I was like, I, I think I have it. Well, yeah, I get that. But it, but that doesn't they could stay the same and that would not violate Newton's third law. But yeah, then there's the other piece. There is the other piece, which yeah. is that Archimedes' principle tells us that the amount is equal to the weight of the water displaced. Displaced. Displacement. Displacement. So it's not about about the weight of the thing that gets put in. It's about how much of the water gets displaced. So it's just a volume thing. Oh, goodness. It was extremely complicated, but we got there. If you are a lemon person, I have good news (laughs) and bad news. The good news is that I now know what happens to you if you put your hand in a bucket of water that's on a scale. The bad news... Is that you're made out of lemons? Yeah. The bad news is that we have a saying uh, here <laughs> on on Earth among the humans. Yeah. That when life uh, oh. gives us you, we squeeze you and put sugar into you. <laughs> Wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. You were imagining the lemon people as aliens because I was definitely imagining the lemon people as like a like a. Here's what I imagined. Hank. Okay. 
Where do you think? Because I was kind of thinking about from? a lemon a lemon person movie, and what mm-hmm. I was imagining is there's a lemon in a landfill somewhere that's rotting away, and it's like turning. But then it encounters some sort of uh, DNA. Sure. It encounters an <laughs> oh no, I got it. It encounters an mRNA vaccine. Oh, okay. and in that moment, mm-hmm. the lemon like starts to be- become more like a lemon, and then it sniffs out other lemons, right. and suddenly right. there's like a lemon mat magnet kind of thing happening where all these lemons are coming together inside of the landfill Mm -hmm. and then once they become a lemon person that's the moment when they like emerge out of the landfill they like emerge out of the garbage and like stand up to their full lemon height and are like i need to put my hand into a bucket of water (laughs) it's what the vaccine told me to do (laughs) there's so many there's so many (laughs) auto injectors that don't get used uh, for people who yes. have like epinephrine auto injectors, so, sure. So maybe maybe it was one of those and an mRNA yes. vaccine at the same time. I got bam. Yes, and then got it's a, like, right. oh, I'm yeah. alive, just like that. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever actually injected somebody with an epipen, Hank, but I have, mm-hmm. and it is, uh, it's intense. <laughs> uh, for for the person doing the injection. No, for the other person. Yeah, like well, they do a, get they do get that that epinephrine in them, it, which it's a big yeah. yeah. I could I could totally see how that could make a lemon person just want to stick right their up. hand in a in a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good origin story, John. I hadn't I hadn't really thought of it. Um, I, I really I do I do really want us to use more lateral thinking in this well, podcast, Hank. And when well, we're trying and, to and think of solutions to problems, species, all of us together yes. on Earth. Yes. Almost every day I think about my favorite example of lateral thinking, which was when Edmund Haley determined the size of England. Like the the government or whatever was like, Hey, Haley, we don't know how big England is. And Haley was like, Oh, I got an idea. Here's what I'm gonna do. We got a good map of England. I'm going to cut out the largest circle that I can cut out of England in this map. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to weigh the circle and then I'm going to cut out the rest of England and I'm going to weigh the rest of England. And because I can figure out the area of a circle pretty easily, Uh I I can therefore figure out what percentage of the weight the circle is, which in turn will tell me how big England is. Yeah, that's pretty great. That's a smarty pants move. You can't yeah, fault that one. Very impressive lad. Now that's a man who could tell you about a lemon bucket situation. Oh man, he he would have had no doubt. <laughs> oh, oh man, you should hear dear Edmund and Isaac, Edmund Haley and Isaac Newton's <laughs> podcast. Those guys, they got it figured out. John, speaking of Isaac Newton, I want yeah. to ask our first question. It's from Angela. Who asks, Dear Hank and John, my five-year-old is fascinated by rainbows. Frankly, so am I. However, after reviewing the color wheel and kindergarten-level color theory and comparing it to the weather phenomenon that is a rainbow, I have a question for you. What is indigo? Oh, boy. It's not a primary color. It's not a secondary color. What is it doing in the rainbow? Why doesn't the rainbow have six colors? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and purple. This makes sense. These are the colors that we talk about. This is me adding to the question, not Angela talking, because I agree with you. And if indigo is a bluish purple, don't all of the colors bleed into each other anyway? (laughs) Why don't we distinguish a reddish orange then as well? Precipitation in pots of gold, Angela. 
Do you know why, Angela? Do you want to know why? It's because Isaac Newton said so. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. He was working with prisms and he was like, here are the colors. There are seven of them. Maybe to like be complimentary because like seven is a nice number. Mm. Or if it's like complimentary mm-hmm. with, I don't know, other yeah, things it, that there are seven of. Right. It maybe felt a little bit like uh, proof of God's plan or whatever. Maybe. Maybe some I, of that. I have always felt when I actually see a rainbow most of the time that there are like three colors, you know, like I think because I was told that a rainbow had seven colors, I'm always a little underwhelmed by actual rainbows. I'm always like, ah, I mean, I guess. Yeah, it has. I'll tell you what it has. Color, which is incredible. Which is very strange. Wild and wonderful. Yeah, if you look at a rainbow, like a really vivid rainbow really closely, here are the, the colors I see. Brown, orange. A well, lot of brown. Green. Yeah. Kind of kind of purple, and then kind of blue, and then kind of purple, and then kind of blue, and then kind of purple, and then kind of blue. Because there's like this thing happening that isn't like the just the rainbow. It's like a, an additional like rainbow upon rainbow sometimes where you get like mm, multiple yeah, rainbows yeah. like next to each other. So you'll see the, the latter part of the spectrum over and over again. So you see like this like blue band, purple band, blue band, purple band, blue band, purple band, which is really cool, but not what you think of when you think of a rainbow. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Hank, I don't really remember what rainbows look like. I don't know what that says about my imagination like, and its lack of visual acuity. But when I close my eyes and try to picture a rainbow, I mostly see the letters that spell the word rainbow. Mm, yeah, I, well, I Google image searched them, which made it easier for me. And oh. I, having looked at them for a little while, I'm realizing that when you look at a rainbow, you might just be seeing a bunch of rainbows all stacked on top of each other. And they like go back like there's but you can't see them because they're all in a direction. But I'm just guessing right now. I don't know this. Here's the other thing I want to talk about rainbows, though. So like, there's this color wheel thing that Angela brings up. We think about colors in the way that we experience them, which is that they all bleed into each other. And when you get to purple, um, it, like you've got blue and then purple and then red and purple is a mix between blue and red. We know this. This is definitely yep. the case. We can yep. functionally do it. And but but then there's this other the the way of like physically understanding rainbows where red and purple are opposites. They are they are as far apart in terms of electromagnetic spectra as they can be before you get out of visual light and you get into the infrared and the ultraviolet. And so in our perception, color all bleeds into each other in a circle. But in reality, there is no circle. There is a spectrum from red to violet. And violet is as far away from red as can be. They do not come back around to touch, despite the fact that in my perception, they come back around to touch. It's very weird. And that's not a, a human invention. It is a physiological thing. It is it is a it's a cells. It's like receptors. The way that we understand this is so cool to me. And and it is just so indicative of the fact that, like, we can very functionally see the world in inaccurate ways. And that's OK. And like and there, and there are in, well, that, not that, in inaccurate ways, but in human ways. I think that I think the right. conclusion from it is actually that we need to always be aware of the fact 
that when we are looking at something, we are looking at it from our particular perspective. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, this this whole notion that somehow you can get outside of your perspective and approach right. a subject from pure objectivity is it's it's just over. Like right, there is right. there is no future for that way of thinking. That's that's why all my favorite nonfiction books right now are nonfiction books that acknowledge that specific mm-hmm. perspective and how profoundly that shapes one's understanding and experience. Right. Like even even books about physics that I love do that. Like uh Chanda Prescott Weinstein's The Disordered Cosmos does an amazing job of that of explaining cosmology and 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 physics and the big bang but while also acknowledging the particularity of their perspective. That's my that that's all I want to read right now. Mm-hmm. And this is such a good example of that because it's not like the fact that color isn't actually a wheel that goes around in a circle matters when you are trying to paint, you know? It doesn't like yeah. that's that's not like a like or even inter- when you're trying to understand color theory, like oh, when yeah. you're trying to understand like how humans respond to color. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's not how the electromagnetic spectrum works. So weird. Very so weird. weird and cool. That reminds me of this next question that comes from Jay, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I was just reading an absolutely remarkable thing. And when I got to a part talking about Mayan numerals, it got me wondering, do y'all study for your books or do you just rely on past knowledge? Rhymes with May, Jay. Well, I didn't have any past knowledge, Jay. I there, <laughs> I was born knowing nothing. <laughs> you should have seen me as a baby. I was in... I, 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 I yeah, I didn't know how to poop in a toilet. <laughs> Putting aside I, my lack of my lack of yeah. understanding of Mayan history, I couldn't focus my own eyes. I could not. I didn't know how to lift my hand. I didn't know who my mother was. Who was that? I knew she. I knew there was a person nearby. I knew that that I didn't person even know was she was around a, a lot. I just knew that there yeah. was like a food source. Uh-huh. That was my first awareness. Yeah. Uh. But uh, yeah, but but the question is well taken. For me, the whole joy of writing is in discovery. And yeah. a huge part of that discovery is sort of like within the own recesses of my imagination, you know, take taking stuff I, I, I've known or experienced or thought about and, and trying to like reshape it, refashion it into language. But also a lot of it is new learning. So I don't know about my numerals, Hank, what that was like for you. But for me, like... I I love like that's one of the things I love about writing is is I guess you would call it research but I it doesn't feel like research to me it just feels like like learning alongside the characters or the essay or whatever it is I'm writing. Yeah, I mean sometimes you are sometimes you you have to know more than the characters so you're not learning alongside of them in that way but but you yes. but yeah, you're out there doing the do, like it is it is can be one of two ways. Sometimes it is I encounter something that is really interesting and I'm like, I that could be a tweet, that could be a TikTok, I could work that into a book, I could make it into a Vlogbrothers video, I could talk about it in the intro to Deer Hang and John. Where am I gonna put that one? <laughs> and, yeah. Uh and and sometimes it like this, I love this so much it's gonna fit really well in, into this story that I'm telling. And so you work it in. And then the other way is like I need a mystery or I need a representation or I need this to you know, I, I need something to fill this role. And then you just like, you just start to look around 
And mm-hmm. it's it's very much the process of when I see a TikTok audio I would like to use, and I'm like, well, what should the joke be for that? What is the way that I can use this TikTok audio in a way that is about science? And and so I can sometimes think, ah, that would be good. Or I can sort of, sort of look around and and like have that be in my mind for a little while. And when I come across something, it it is just more likely to fit into the frame that I've kept present sort of on the back burner. And then you plug it in or you, and, and, and then you do deeper research and you find that there's actually something more interesting because that's always where the really cool uh, little corners of the universe happen when, when you are actually, rather than just being sort of exposed to whatever someone else has found when you're doing that research yourself. Yeah. To use a very straightforward, very old example in my own life and work, I remember I was trying to think of a name for the character in Looking for Alaska for Alaska, and I heard the Velvet Underground song, Stephanie Says, where there's a lyric that's like, she's not afraid to die, the people all call her Alaska. And then I was thinking Alaska is like very big and far away and um, like often misimagined in the mm-hmm. imagination of people who don't who don't live there. And I was like, that's interesting. And then when I was reach, researching the history of Alaska and the history of the name and if, is it a name that's ever been used for people? And, you know, because I, I, I never want to pick a name that's going to like make somebody's life worse. You know? So I always try to make sure that the name isn't associated with a person or, or else that it's common enough that it's not going to be a problem for them. Anyway, uh, but then I, I learned the, the, what the word means, like what the word that uh, our name of the, for the state of Alaska comes from. And it means the place, it means land basically, but, but in a more literal sense, it means that which the sea breaks against. And I was like, well, that's also oh, very good. Yeah. And, and so uh, then now I had, you're locked in. And right. And so then I had a name, mm-hmm. but, but really like writing something or creating anything, like I, I feel the same way about making videos or, you know, knitting, whatever kind of creative work you do. It's always about trying to like fit in puzzle pieces. For me, it's like a, it's almost a way of puzzling through consciousness, like trying to make some kind of map or some kind of sense out of something that doesn't for me have an inherent map or sense. And that's what makes it so fun. I agree. John, our next question comes from Sophia who asks, Dear Hank and John, I recently watched an episode of Phineas and Ferb in which everything in the universe gets 10 times bigger. And Mm -hmm. I assume, therefore, the whole universe itself. Anyway, my brother and I were wondering whether this would be noticeable were it to happen to our universe. Oh, Would it affect physics in some way, particularly? Oh, God. Uh, Because... What if it just happened? What... (laughs) What if it just happened, Hank? What if I'm 10 times bigger than I was three seconds ago and I don't yeah. know? I don't have any way of knowing because everything else is also 10 times bigger. Does it matter philosophically? Does it matter physically? Would it matter if everything just got 10 times bigger if nobody noticed? Vita Do I even Lena. know how big I am? Or do I only know how big I am relative to other things? No, yeah, you have no idea how big you are, John. You have how no big idea. I? Yeah, you have no idea how big you are. I could be very small. Yeah, you are. Or I could be very large. You are. Oh, God. (laughs) This this is a thing that happens in high school um, where you watch uh, some kind of film on a TV that talks about powers of 10. 
Um, and they they were they existed when 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 my science teacher was in high school, when I was in high like they, they've always been around. Uh, but there are a bunch of them, and uh, and they take a lot of different forms now. But the the idea is like you start out at like the smallest thing, and then you go like ten times, ten times, ten times, and you see how big everything is. The very strange thing about this is that we are like right in the middle between the smallest thing and the biggest thing. Like we are kind of right in the middle. We we are not as close to in the middle. I I also watched that, and we are not as as close to in the middle as I would like. Like we're not <laughs> right, right in the middle. I feel like narratively, I want to be right, right in the middle. But also, we don't, <laughs> we don't really know how. You know, like right. What's the biggest thing? We don't really know what the biggest thing is, and we may not really know what the smallest. We thing have is. A, we have some better ideas about what the smallest thing is. But you're right, we don't know. Uh, We've been wrong before about this kind of thing, <laughs> especially yeah. like we've been wrong about what the smallest thing was uh, several times. So I'm not, yeah. I'm yeah. not, I'm not willing to. Be- Hank, I can't believe you just been talking. We've just been talking like nothing's happening when I could be increasing <laughs> and decreasing in size by factors of ten every second. And ever since you mentioned that to me, I, I have had a, a feeling of profound vertigo come over me and the only hope that i have and please tell me that this hope is grounded in reality the only hope that i have is the speed of light because the speed of light is constant no matter mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. And, and 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 maybe that's something that i can hold on to <laughs> well there are a bunch of constants so so i think it would matter i'm i think it would matter so if we all if if the constants remained constant and and like every atom so it's like functionally what does this mean if we get 10 times bigger does that mean does that mean we have 10 times more atoms because if that's the case it definitely matters if we get 10 times bigger and we uh, we are 10 times more massive and we are experiencing the same gravity or even more gravity because the earth is 10 times bigger then we're pancakes like we are in a bad situation we are not going to survive so you would notice that if just the atoms got 10 times bigger, but the particles stayed the same, so if if the neutrons and protons and electrons all stayed the same mm. size, but the atoms got bigger, mm. everything would instantly evaporate and nothing would exist because the the you know the strong and weak nuclear forces would would not have changed, but there would be that more makes space. Me feel better. <laughs> well, at least you know it's not happening. I love the, the idea of instantaneous <laughs> evaporation of all life. That's a fun. That's all a fun things. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just that's it, a good one. There would no longer let's, be things. Yeah, be, let, you know be what? Let's else. take let's take that off the table. I'd rather. <laughs> I'd rather not. I'd rather not consider it. I'd like yeah. to remove that from the list of options. But but if you can just make every, like if you can make all of the particles bigger, and you can also compensate all of the fundamental forces of physics to also match then yeah maybe we could just be getting bigger and small i don't know maybe this is the one thing they haven't tried yet like maybe physics suddenly makes a lot of sense if you just take into account that we might all constantly be changing size (laughs) and all like all the constants aren't actually constant they just look constant because we keep changing size along with them i love i love that you're you're proposing a novel idea in physics as if, like, I am 100% sure that oh, a they, physicist thought of has thought of that. Yeah, they like, thought of everything. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's been looked into extensively. Yeah. 
So, yeah, uh, uh, just go ahead and do the math, math nerds, and tell me whether or not we're changing size all the time. I don't understand any of your fancy integrals, so I'll just be over here uh, making podcasts uh, and thinking about frogs. Okay, Hank, if we could put aside gravity and we could put aside all the other things that would turn all the problems. Yeah. But but Earth was the same size and all the other creatures were the same size. Uh-huh. And and you had to be and all you had to pick for all of humanity. We're either getting 10 times bigger or we're getting 10 times smaller. What do you pick? Oh, 10 times smaller every time. Me too. Because most of the problems that we're creating I feel mm-hmm. like would be 10 times smaller if we were yeah. just 10 times smaller. Our houses would be 10 times smaller. Our cars would be 10 oh, yeah. times smaller. The crops, the foods. And, and at this point, like the question is, would we get eaten by our cats? Like that is the... That's, Probably. Yeah. And so if you have a cat or maybe a dog, but definitely a cat, uh, this may end up being a bad situation for you. How small is 10 times smaller? I'd be 20 pounds. So I feel like I could take you a cat. You could take a cat. You, well, I feel like I could. You, I feel like yeah. it would be a great fight. I mean, people would pay good money to yeah, see 20 like pound were, me take on my house cat. <laughs> if, you were a, if you were 100 times smaller, that would be a big problem. If you're 10 oh, times yeah, smaller, no, we could you're, probably you're figure like it out. Mouse. Like there yeah. would be, we'd have a lot of, a lot of infrastructure changes we'd have to make. I think. But, well, that goes without saying. Yes, a lot of things would be different, Hank. Um, but I think I feel that like, we wouldn't get eaten by cats, which would be nice. We, I feel like the immediate problem, though, would be predation. Like, we would yeah. have to very quickly develop strategies because all the coyotes would be like, oh, guys, great news. <laughs> Fine, the people are finally edible. You know our biggest problem? Not only has it been solved, but they're food now. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a lot of the reason why we're this size. Um, I I have maintained, you know, so we don't get eaten by coyotes and also so that we can eat and and fight with things that, you know, will become our food. People have heard me talk about this before, but I have always maintained that people should be much smaller. Um, I I look at my son who is five, going to be five years old very soon. And I'm like, that seems great. Look how Look how close his head is to the ground. It is much harder for him to hurt himself. It's such a great solution to climate change to have us all be 10 times smaller than we currently are. Like, almost all of our problems are because we are trying to fit these ridiculous-sized bodies into cars and trucks and things that go. And we're having to, like, eat all of this stuff that we wouldn't have to eat if we were just... 20 pound little creatures, you mm-hmm. know? And like, we, listen, we could still be the dominant species on planet. Yeah. We would have, we would have guns. Don't worry about that. Believe me. The first thing, <laughs> the first problem that would get solved is how do you make a gun for that's 10 times smaller? Oh, God, Somebody wow. would be like, it would be like hours into this <laughs> I like phenomenon. That, I like that you're thinking that everybody's first thought was, will we still get to have a gun though? Well, I, 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 I am very worried about coyotes, Hank. Like that's my, no, <laughs> okay. if, if, that's right. my number one concern. Coyotes yeah. stay the same size. I get 10 times smaller. Mm-hmm. I live in a place with a lot of coyotes and I, I, I have looked into their eyes and they want, they're, they're ready to eat me. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to need a, a gun that's 10 times smaller or some, ki- some or, kind of or, system, some kind of system. Oh. What are you going to do to the coyote, John? 
the thing we would do, Hank, is we would immediately build these like mechanized suits that would make us six feet tall again. And we would go back to using all of our old infrastructure and we would no. continue to burn fossil fuels out the wazoo. That's what we would do. No, I, I bet we would. People. Well, it's not like people are driving around in cars that are like the right size for them now. That's a great point. <laughs> Like we're trying to imagine this highly hypothetical world when, yeah. (laughs) People would go and they'd just be in it's like, nah, they'd just be getting in the big trucks even bigger. We know exactly what would happen if people were 10 times smaller, which is that they would develop incredibly sophisticated strategies for driving current sized minivans. Yeah. All right. Hank, this next question comes from Jacob. He writes, Dear John and Hank, whenever I go to the dentist, I always find it awkward staring into my dentist's eyes as he works on my face. But if I close my eyes, I still still feel awkward because every five minutes he asks, are you okay? Should I leave my eyes open or keep them closed? <laughs> Sincerely, Jacob. Mm. I, I try to look at my feet. You, you know, like I try to look at my shoes. You like, can so look that my eyes. No, well, my eyes are open. You can. Yeah, I can look no, down. No, you can't look down. You're looking up. You got to tilt your head up and open your mouth real big. No, you can't see your feet. I'm going you to the dentist look- soon, so I and I haven't been in. Wait, wait, buddy, buddy, slow down, slow yeah. down. What? You can't look down. Not when I got a dentist in my mouth. What? I don't understand. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. So your eyes? Uh huh. They're on the top, the face- top above my above my uh, nose and mouth. When your face goes up, uh huh. Okay, now I want you to tilt your face up toward the ceiling. Uh huh. Now I want you to look down at your microphone. Uh huh. You see how you're doing that? You're looking down. That's very good. I'm very proud of you. But you can <laughs> look down when your face is up. Yeah, I can barely see it. I can see my cheeks moving around when I talk. I just try. I I just try to look down. That's that's my strategy so that my eyes are open and the dentist isn't like. Is he dead? Right. But at the same time, I'm not making eye contact because I find, I mean, I find eye contact uncomfortable in the, in the most normal experiences. So that's my strategy. I want, I just want a, a VR headset that I wear while I'm at the dentist that does two things. Number one, it tells me whether my mouth is open enough because I always think this time I'm going to be so good at keeping my mouth open that the dentist will not have to say, can you open up? A little because I always get distracted and my mouth starts to float close. And then the the dentist is like, oh, God, another another one. I can't see any of the teeth. And so I feel like I'm a bad dentist patient. The second thing I want it to do is give me just an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation that I can watch because I don't want to be here. I want to be on the USS Enterprise in the 24th century. Yeah, I've spent way too much of my life at a dentist's office. Yeah. But not enough for the last year and a half there. Um, I do not want to tell you how long it's been since I've been to the dentist. Don't tell me. It's going to stress me out. I, I really, I can't, I can't handle it. I, I'll tell you right now. We got to move on. We're moving on. This next question comes from Trent, who writes, Dear John and Hank, not that I was planning on doing this anytime soon, but if I fell through a cloud, would I get wet? Oh, I hmm. have a great answer for this question, John. Great. What is it? So during the last, so uh, when we recorded this, I, I have just gotten back from celebrating my 15th anniversary with Catherine, uh, our 15th anniversary. And we were in California and we were in a giant grove of 
of redwood trees. These giant, beautiful trees of varying ages. It's really intensely beautiful. And it was raining. And I was, uh, it was raining, but it was raining very sort of nicely. And so we were walking through this rainy redwood forest on sort of a sort of half path, half road. And, and then, and then suddenly um, we came out from under the redwood trees and it wasn't raining anymore because it wasn't raining, John. It was just foggy, but the redwood trees were getting wet. Hmm. And they were dripping all the water off of them because they got they get all wet. And that's part of how redwoods are able to grow so high is because they can get water up at the top without having to pull it all the way from their roots uh, because they can get it from the sky. So you would you, if you just sit in a cloud for long enough, you'll get kind of damp for sure, especially if you're, uh, you know, cool, I think. I think you have to be like like uh, like more stuff will condense on you if you're cooler. But. Clouds are just little droplets of water. So yes, you will get damp the more time you spend in a cloud, which is just fog. So you can spend time in a a cloud if you would like to. I feel like the question was more like, uh, if I fall at terminal velocity through a cloud, will I get wet? In which case, the answer is no. You will get a little bit wet. What is wet? Yeah. yeah, you You won't be like, first off. You won't be like anything, but to the extent that you are like anything, you won't be like, oh, I just got so wet. Like that's not going to be on your list of concerns when it's negative 43 degrees Fahrenheit and you're falling at 224 miles an hour. Sure. Uh, one assumes that there is a, uh, a parachute involved. If you fall through a rain cloud, you definitely get wet. Uh, yeah, yeah. You would. There's a bunch of rain in there. It's true. So who's smarty pants now? I just wanted to tell that story about the Redwoods because I was so amazed. I was like, why did it stop raining? Why is it? Because it's usually the opposite. Like you go under a tree to get dry when it's raining. Yep. But it was only raining under the trees and not out out from under the trees. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I'm sure that was a lovely experience. I wish I had gone somewhere for my 15th anniversary. (laughs) What did you what did you do? Uh Sarah and I went through for a walk through Crown Hill, the <laughs> cemetery here in oh, Indianapolis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was fun. Because we've been married for fairly similar times, huh? Yeah, just a few months different. Which actually reminds me that today's podcast is brought to you by 2006. 2006, the year that many yeah. great marriages were formed. Uh-huh. This po- podcast is also brought to you by Dear Isaac and Edmund, a new <laughs> podcast coming at you <laughs> Such from, a good idea. from Isaac Newton and Edmund Haley as they uh, take on all kinds of thought problems that do and do not involve lemons. Uh, and of course, speaking of lemons, today's podcast and, and all of our podcasts for the rest of all time will be sponsored by The Lemon Man. The Lemon Man formed... In the pit of a the landfill, landfill and by, now by auto injectors, <laughs> and now running rampant through the streets of, I believe, Pittsburgh. Ah, I think that that's correct. This podcast is also brought to you by Pizza Mess. Da, 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 da. We didn't talk about it in the beginning. It's yes. the first day of Pizza Miss right now, John. And if you go to pizzamiss.com, there are all kinds of amazing products available for purchase there are there there is a a, a, there are two at least there were i don't know if they've sold out yet two pizza miss blankets which are so nice and one of them is beautiful and the other one is a very 
a, a statement piece, one would say. <laughs> There's a lot of great stuff at pizzamist.com. It's available only for two weeks, only during Pizzamist, this weird time of year where for some reason Hank and I celebrate my mustachioed face from 2008. Mm -hmm. And as always, all of our proceeds and royalties go to charity. So check it out, pizzamist.com. So many astonishing, truly astonishing designs (laughs) this year. And objects. It continues to amaze me year after year. Go to pizzamist.com to see all of the weird and wild pizzamist designs that are only available during this year's pizzamist. It's two weeks, and also we're making videos on Vlogbrothers every weekday like we did back in 2007. I really love pizzamist, John. I like clearing out my calendar and being like, you know what I'm doing now? I'm just being a YouTuber. (laughs) Like, yeah, like I used to be. And uh, it's fun. It's a lot, but it's fun for sure. Yeah, it's a great time. So check out YouTube.com slash Vlogbrothers, too, if you want to. But no pressure. There's lots of videos. We also have a Project Frosted message from Johannes to Andrea or Andrea. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess Andrea. Yeah. Okay. I, I love you so much. Yes, John, we're still together two years later and still send cheesy messages to each other via podcast. Wow. Aww, that's so sweet. That's nice. Thank that's you, nice. Johannes, and thank you, Andrea. And thanks to everybody who donated the Project for Awesome this year. It's been lovely to read your messages all throughout the year. This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know... That uh, about five billion billion. That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are ninety percent water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away twenty-five percent more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe. Turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products that have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. 
This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Chobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. John, this next question comes from Kitty who asks, dear Hank and John, why can't I melt wood? I was told in school that any anything can be in any form of matter if it's hot or cold enough. So by that logic, the solid that is wood should turn into a liquid if it is heated enough, but it doesn't. Instead, it just catches on fire. I've been thinking about this for years. Kitty. Kitty, it's a great question. It's a great question. I thought about it a lot, and I am fairly certain that you cannot melt wood. It's a bummer. So? You want to know more about this, John? Well, I want to know if it's just not true that everything has three states of matter, because I've always kind of assumed that it's just not true. Like, it seems to me that a lot of things don't have three states of matter. Give me another example. Um, uh, well, now I'm struggling, but only because you've put me on the spot. The same way I struggle if somebody <laughs> says, like, well, what's a book that you've read recently that you enjoyed? And I'm like, I've, I have I just arrived here on Earth, and I have only existed for one nanosecond. Just give me one thing besides wood that you don't think can evaporate. <sighs> My first idea was books, but then I was like, books are made out of wood. <laughs> oh. uh, what can't evaporate? I feel, I mean, I feel like there's some kind of rocks that can't evaporate. Mm. Well, here's the situation, John. You could, you can melt the stuff that wood is made out of. Okay. But sure. But, but wood is a, is a, is a complex bunch of like lots of different organic molecules. And some organic molecules are fairly simple and they can indeed, um, you know, carbon-based molecules like methane is a great example. Like you can have gaseous methane or liquid methane or solid methane. You can do that. But wood is really complicated. And so especially if it's got some oxygen around it, it's going to catch on fire before it melts. But what if you say no oxygen, you cannot oxidize, no fire. We're going to put you in pure argon and we're going to just get you hotter and hotter and hotter and see what happens. In that case, I'm pretty sure what would happen is 
so these these molecules have been built by the intention they these molecules have been built um by energy coming into plants and being used to construct molecules that are very stable but they are not uh at chemical equilibrium like they they there are component pieces of them that would be at lower energy states and as they get hotter and hotter and start jiggling around before they reach the melting point of wood they would dissociate from each other some gases would be released some i think that it would probably look a lot like char like you know burned wood even if it wasn't actually burning and you would end up with like carbon and like low molecular weight organic molecules that would eventually melt and then evaporate and it would just be gas so yes you can melt the things that wood is made out of but you can't melt wood because by the time you get it hot enough i think that it would probably I'm I'm fairly certain that it would, you know, break into lots of different smaller pieces because wood molecules are like huge, huge carbon chains that would just break apart if they got jiggled too much by energy. Mm. What about bones? I feel like bones don't melt. Uh, I can do this all day. Mm, I don't know. I bones feel, might melt. Don't you feel like bones are kind of the wood of us? <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, no, you know I, I, mean. I absolutely I don't think, have to explain it so. further. Yes, I think, yeah, that, I think that bones are the wood of us, yeah, and so that's why I think bones probably don't melt that well because they're like they're what we have instead of wood, yeah. So I think yeah. that I think that, uh, like, like wood bones lateral would fa- thinking would, f- would fall apart and then they would melt after all the pieces <sighs> fell apart. All right, let's answer another question. This one comes from Katie, who writes, Dear John and Hank. I just reorganized my bookshelf and I was admiring my work when I noticed that John has had three different publishers, Speak, Penguin, and Dutton. Several other series I have are also published by different publishers. Why is this? Do publishers sell the rights of individual books to each other? Do you switch publishers like one might change jobs, copyright, and categorization? Katie. Oh boy, you just opened up a whole bag of bones with this one. Gotta, uh, <laughs> These bones don't melt. Yeah. Uh, so the, I, the, the short answer is that actually all of those books are published by the same company. The long answer yeah. is lots of people do get their books broken up between different publishers and why is very complicated. Did I get it right? Basically, Hank and I are two of the only authors who haven't changed publishers, actually. <laughs> uh, so Penguin, Speak, and Dutton are all different versions of the same publisher. My books are published by Dutton, but then when the paperbacks come out for a long time, I don't think it does anymore, actually, but for a long time, Penguin had paperback specific publishers and Dutton wasn't one of them. So mm-hmm. it would have a different, you know, set of letters on the spine. But like functionally for me, the publication experience was the same. And Hank's, both of Hank's books are published by Dutton on the adult side, just as my book, The Anthropocene Reviewed was. A lot of these names don't really mean much to people outside of publishing. Yeah. And sometimes I I have to explain that to people inside of publishing, (laughs) like outside of publishing, nobody really cares that much about the name, but it can matter a little bit. Now, most authors do change publishers the way that people change jobs or they change publishers because their editors move or because they're unhappy with the way that their previous book was published or because they can't get their next book published with the same publisher. There's all kinds of reasons. But 
the the thing that's really nice about having had one publisher, and Hank and I have both been incredibly fortunate in this way, and, and it's mostly down to luck. But the thing that is really nice is that when you have a new book come out, the publisher is highly motivated to also sell your old books because mm-hmm. they also published them. Whereas if you have all of your books at a bunch of different publishers, it can be a little hard to get everybody organized around supporting a new book. And so I think there's some advantages to it, but there's a lot of different ways to have a writing life. And I don't know if ours is the right way. Well, yeah, I mean, I yeah, it 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 comes down to a lot of different individual decisions and like opportunities and, you know, working relationships between people. So, yeah, yeah. You are right. It often comes down to a lot of luck. I mean, I would say that 98%. publishing, like like the rest of life. Yeah. It, it, some people ask me to like say like how much is luck, how much is skill, and I want to say like it's a uh, hundred and thirty seven percent luck and like forty six percent skill. Right. Yeah, because you but need because you because you can't uh, even if you had like the maximum amount of all of it, you still can't anticipate it actually happening. Yeah, it's definitely more than 100% luck. (laughs) So the news from AFC Wimbledon. (laughs) I mean, it's good and it's bad, Hank. Here's the thing. AFC Wimbledon uh, have lost now three straight games. One of those games games we lost to Arsenal, which doesn't really count. And I thought we actually played pretty well. We lost 3-0 which is a pretty good result. But I'll tell you what, we lost 3-0 in front of 56,000 people. Yeah. And that's a a 300,000-ish pound payday for AFC Wimbledon, which is massive. Like, it makes the rest of the season a lot easier. And so that's, obviously, it would have been great to win the game, but uh, playing the game was its own victory. And I, I, again, I thought we played well in places. It was a really stark contrast. A couple of years ago, we played Tottenham, another big Premier League team, and we just looked awful. And in this game, there were stretches of it where we really looked competitive and where we were trying to like express our own identity. And I thought that was great. We then lost to Shrewsbury or Shrewsbury, I guess they say in the UK, although that seems impossible to me, who were in the relegation zone and and it was their first victory of Oof. the year. And it was a really disappointing win on a, on a bunch of levels. Like I just, we just played like we were off the pace all day long and that was frustrating. So the, 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 the kettle is off the boil. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. Well, you scored first. That's the problem. We should never score first. I agree. It is a huge issue. (laughs) We only come from behind. But um, yeah, so we, we, that said, after nine games, we're in eighth place. So I'm not in a a position to complain. It's good, but you need to win some games. Uh, We do. Yeah. And the the Dons are in third. What the hell is going on there? No, the franchise currently playing its trade in Milton Keynes is in third. The Dons are in are in eighth. But I know what you mean. And uh yeah, yeah, they're good this year. We play them in a couple weeks and hopefully we can take them down a peg. Well, we just uh, so you just have to do whatever the teams that are winning a lot of games are doing. So get no, do that, that and it's going to That be great. is the key, Hank. <laughs> you've you've cracked the code. All right. 
Well, that's gonna. I think that that's really gonna help fix things for for y'all. Um, <laughs> not that you're not that you need fixing. You're doing great. Yeah, it's not an emergency just yet. Um, so, John, do you remember the Insight Lander? Of course. Do you remember that its solar panels got covered in dirt? Yes, dust, and it, it was like, is this mission gonna end? Uh, and we thought it was going to end, but we were waiting because maybe there was going to be a nice big Martian wind that yes. was going to clear up those solar panels. Yeah. Well, and and yes. Yeah, so we, so we've been waiting for this, but one of the problems is this dust that's coating the solar panels is really fine, and so it's just like a tiny, tiny, thin layer. And so the moment a breeze comes over, if it might like knock a few bits off, but it just like sort of coasts over the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And so it, be, it has become a problem and, and uh, it was worrying a lot of scientists. So what they did is they sprinkled some sand. So they picked up sand and they put it mm. on the solar panels, which seems like that would make it worse uh, because now you got bigger rocks on there. So they sprinkled sand onto the solar panels. But now when the wind comes by, that sand like makes it more turbulent and scours away some of and and as the sand blows away because the sand isn't so even as the dust is it is able to push push away some of the dust along with it and that has made it possible for insight to continue gathering data uh and it has been able to measure three quakes uh that that are bigger than any it's ever measured so that before the summer the largest quake the lander had recorded was a 3.7 in 2019 on August 25th, it recorded two quakes with magnitude 4.2 and 4.1. And then September 18th, which also happened to be Insight's 1,000th Marsh, Martian day. So it seems like this thing has been there for not very long time to me, but it's been there for 1,000 days. It measured a 4.2 earthquake that lasted for almost an hour and a half, making what? it the longest and biggest quake the mission has detected. Yeah. An hour and a half? Hour and a half long earthquake. Do I understand how that works? No. Don't ask me any questions. That sounds uncomfortable. <laughs> well, that's a little one. I don't think you'd even be able to feel it if you were a person. Um, I, I don't know. We had a 4.2 earthquake in Indianapolis like 14 years ago, and people still talk about it. <laughs> um, so they're still trying to figure out where all these Mar- uh, Mars quakes came from and what they are going to tell them about Mars. One of them came from 5,280 miles from the lander, making it the most distant quake recorded and opening up the mystery of exactly what region the quake originated from. So, like, it's far away, but, like, we don't know exactly where it was when it happened. The lander was able to make those measurements because of that cleaning, and without that cleaning, it wouldn't have been able to do it. So smart engineers solving problems in whatever way they can from... Uh, a very, 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 very long way away. I love the idea of eventually deciding the only chance we have to make this problem better is to first make it worse. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things like that in life. Uh-huh. Cleaning my office is the main one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe I need to like come and like spray it down with something and then you'll be like, oh, now I got to clean it. <laughs> Smells like fish eggs in here. Oh, God. Uh no, I, yeah. I mean, it's just like everything ends up on the floor when I start cleaning. But boy, is it not great in here. Also, I may have to make my teeth worse before they get better. We'll ask the dentist when I get there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks to everybody for listening. And most importantly, thank you for all of your responses to yes. the lemon people bucket problem. It was so beautiful to see our community come together around the needs of lemon people in such a, a, an astonishing way. And 
it's this is so fun. We are so grateful to you for listening. <laughs> thank you. I I cannot believe that I get to do this every week. And so thank you for writing yeah. and thank you for your many wonderful questions. We're off to record our Patreon only podcast this weekend stuff where we're going to talk about some things that are making us pleased right now. Uh, so come on over to that if you want to see it. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tuna Medish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas. Our communications coordinator is Julia Bloom. Our editorial assistant is Debuki Chakravarti. The music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't forget, forget to, to be awesome. awesome.